Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by KiwiCo and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? Uh, pretty good. How are you? I- I'm good. I feel like we need to add like a space policy phrase to our opener. Hmm. <laughs> just We have a lot of that going on. It's just a busy time for planning and budgets and policy and course we want to talk about what all that leads to so we're, i think we're willing to put up with the the shenanigans but uh, i don't know I'm, I'm enjoying this season of like what's happening with nasa nobody knows and it's it's <laughs> space policy is way more interesting than i thought it was before we started this show that's what i'm saying what 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 subject is more related to space than space policy than space policy that's true that's a good point so mm. i feel like that's pretty all-encompassing is what you're saying yeah yeah i think we got it I think we got it. Um, I guess we should go through our pre-flight checklist, or as we like to call it, the prefect, because that's a fake acronym that isn't even an prefect. acronym. Prefect. I yeah. always have to double check what letters are capitalized when I put in the chapter <laughs> markers in the MP3. <laughs> uh, there are probably some episodes out there that they're wrong. Pre but, is uh, for pre. Yeah. F is for flight, even though there's no E in flight. And that's the most confusing one. Is uh, for checklist, because it starts with a C and ends with a T. Prefect. Yeah. Yeah, the F-E in the middle. It's confusing. Okay. The Starhopper, which is the test platform of what will become SpaceX's Starship spacecraft. So the big, big capsule, or not even capsule, big spaceship, really, <laughs> that will fly atop the Super Heavy, the rocket formerly known as the BFR. Starhopper is just the bottom half of one of those. And they are beginning their test firings of the Raptor engine. So this is a motor that SpaceX has been use, uh, been developing now for some time. The current Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy use Merlin engines. The Raptor is much bigger, much more powerful. And they have a single one of them on the bottom of this uh, test platform. It is just the bottom half of the test platform. Remember we spoke several weeks ago now about how the wind toppled it over and smashed up the top half. And they said, it doesn't actually have to look like a rocket if it's not going very far. So it, it doesn't look like much. But uh, the, the news here is that they had their first successful uh, static fire of this vehicle. So that's where it is clamped down to the launch pad. Didn't go anywhere. But that is the next step. Really small hops the first few being really only a few inches, just coming off the pad and going back down and eventually working their way up to do low atmosphere, low altitude testing. And as they become more, uh, I guess, confident in this this motor and this test platform, eventually potentially adding more than one Raptor motor to the bottom of this thing. But it's it's little baby flights, little baby steps for Starhopper so far. Yeah, and they're, the the idea here is, you know, the Raptor engine is important because they're using the Merlin engines on the current ones, and they want to use the Raptors on the on the Starship on the BFR, and so, um, you know, as you pointed out in our in our notes here, you know, they did this with Falcon back, you know, nine years ago they were doing this with Falcon, so this is this is part of the longer horizon to get to new spacecraft kind of stuff that they're doing, um, but it's interesting that it's there and there's like a live camera where you can watch it and wait to see if there's fire and stuff like that. It's it's interesting. It's a pretty proven test route for them. So understand yeah. why they're why they're doing this again. Okay, I've got one for you. 
in the in our checklist, and it's uh, a little depressing. I, oh, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit, but it is cool in a kind of creepy space kind of way. So, okay. um, you know about exoplanets, right? Yes. Okay. How about an exo dead planet? Oh no! <laughs> what, ha- what happened to it? Our IP planet. Well, Stephen, what happened to it is that its star that it was orbiting around um, was at the end of its life and expanded into a red giant and sloughed off most of its uh, outer shell and became a white dwarf. That'll and get you every time. It's not good for planets, right? It's just <laughs> it's not, not healthy for planets to have your star kind of melt you. Mm-hmm. But it happens to all of them, basically, one way or another. And in this case, what we've got is a um, uh, looking for exoplanets, I think, and, and, and looking around white dwarfs for uh, debris disks and things like that, because white dwarfs are the end point of stars like our sun. And what they found around this particular white dwarf was a uh, something that's like an exoplanet, but it can't really be because it's orbiting very close to the white dwarf only every two hours um, and it is a dense chunk of matter. They, it's the first time that they've uh, been able to use a, a spectroscope and get uh, an idea of the material that are, it's being kind of like sloughed off behind it. It's got a comet-like tail um, that it's leaving behind it, like a trail of particles. And they were able to analyze that. They know that it's it's metal. It's probably something like solid iron. Um, it's so close that you think about it, like a white dwarf is the end result. Uh, this thing was probably not... You know, it, it could not have been like in the star before, so it's probably the core of a larger planet, and it's all that's left. Gotcha. And at some point, dynamically in the process of this solar system kind of coming apart at the end of its life, it ended up being very close, but not going into the white dwarf. So it is a big chunk of iron, probably the core of a planet. It's all that's left. And what's interesting about this is it's although it is sort of grim and sad that this is like a broken chunk of a planet that's all that's left around this white dwarf what's interesting is it is uh giving us some ideas of what a solar system might look like after at the end of stellar evolution where there's just a white dwarf remaining and the fact that bits and pieces of that solar system can survive the death of the star so even though this is not a a place any life could probably live at any point anywhere in this solar system. And there may be other junk further out from it, but they were able to spot this dense chunk. Um, that That is interesting. That's a core of a planet or something managed to survive after, uh, after being uh, heated up and uh, engulfed in a red giant and all of that. Like somehow some portion of uh, something from this solar system survived. But yeah, it's, it's just a big chunk of iron. Uh, orbiting a white dwarf every two hours, and that's uh, that's how that solar system ends. Yeah, you would imagine whatever it was a part of was much, much larger at some point, and this is just a little chunk of fragment left behind. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. It's it's and and like I said, it's kind of creepy. It's like a, you know, it's just a little piece of a planet. It's all that's left after the rest of it got blown away by the evolution of the star at the end of its life. We all saw the latest season of Agents of Shield. We know what happened. Moment of silence. For the planet. <laughs> uh, I have something that's less sad for okay, you. Good, 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 good. Uh, we all know Rocket Lab, mm-hmm. the up and coming uh, private space company. And they have the Electron rocket that they've flown a couple of times now. And they uh, have unveiled the Photon Satellite Platform. So this is designed to tuck into the payload fairing of the Electron rocket. 
And the idea here is that it is a basically a, a generic platform that their customers can use to build their own small satellite. So this is different than like CubeSats. This is much larger, but I think the idea is kind of the same, like a a sort of generic common platform that then someone could come in and add cameras and communications and sensors and that sort of thing. So you don't have to start from scratch every time you've got to build a satellite. This could be like a reference platform for companies that are going to fly on the Electron rocket, which is a a really, I think, a really clever idea. And they can, Rocket Lab is saying they can work with their customers to uh, basically design it all kind of together, or they could design it all for you. So say that you were doing you know, some sort of scientific research and you didn't have the capabilities, you just knew what kind of instruments you needed, then Rocket Lab could go in and integrate all of it and kind of build something up from this reference platform into something that would meet your needs. Kind of like a full service space package, <laughs> I think is uh, kind of the, the phrase we came up with in the show notes. And I think that's super interesting. You know, CubeSats are in a way democratizing low Earth orbit in a way that really has never been done before, but they they definitely have their limitations, right? They are quite small and they generally don't last super long because of that. They've got limited power capacity and just that size is limiting in a lot of ways. And this is sort of, I think, taking that idea and blowing it up to the next size. It can carry up to 170 kilograms of payload within this reference frame, they plan on, on on expanding that, where a photon frame could actually carry multiple payloads. You could go in with somebody else and sort of split this. And uh, they're looking to launch these as early as as next year. And they say they've got customers lined up and, and already working on it. So it's uh, I think it's an exciting time and a a clever twist on this idea of satellites are hard and making it easier is good for a lot of people. Yeah, access to space is a recurring theme. Easier access, cheaper access to space on this on this podcast since we've been doing it. And there are a lot of mm-hmm. companies out there that are trying to make it a lot easier to get uh, and cheaper, affordable to get your stuff into space. And, uh, you know, just uh, take the bus. That's the answer. Take the bus. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the photon bus. Yeah. Just ride ride that right into uh, low Earth orbit if you, if you need to. <laughs> Um, do you want to hear my uh, my methane news? Your methane? I have news. I have news okay. about methane to bring to you. Well, I, I didn't find the methane. And okay. there, are, there are probably not cows on Mars, although we can't be entirely sure, but probably not space cows. Uh, but they, they're interesting new findings about the methane cycle on Mars. Now, previously, they've measured on Mars uh, the kind of up increases in the amount of methane in the atmosphere, which is a little bit weird because it suggests that there's some sort of... Um, some sort of cycle going on that's causing methane to be released and then uh, having it kind of dissipate. And what's interesting about these new findings is that it was corroborated by two different instruments. So um, Mars Express, an orbiter, measured the amount of methane in Gale Crater and found that there were increased amounts of methane. This was a couple summers ago. And that's where Curiosity is. Curiosity had also measured a rise in methane that lasted a couple of months. So we've got corroborating evidence, right, of this methane increase in Gale Crater. Um, That's very interesting. It's like more uh, facts about methane on Mars. What's interesting is, you know, we don't really know why methane is being... um, put into the atmosphere 
on Mars, but there are two possibilities that are that we think are pretty likely or or at least strong possibilities. One of them would be a biological process that there is some sort of like a uh, bacteria-like thing beneath the surface that is excreting methane. Um but you know, it, it isn't always aliens. Um in fact, it's almost never aliens. But it could be. But uh, it could also be a, a geological process. Um, but the good news about that geological process, which is called serpentinization or something like that, it's a geological process, but it requires heat and liquid water. And then as a part of that process, methane is uh, is released. And that's good, too, because heat and liquid water is a place where life might be. So yes. either way, the, the seasonal methane on Mars is intriguing in that it's another thing to be uh, paying attention to uh, as a possible indicator of what's going on inside Mars and if there might be life or places where life could exist. Or just even active, like you said, active geological activity. Right. Not if Life might exist in the geological activity, but it's also interesting just that like something's going on and it's not yeah. <laughs> totally dead. Well, we were hoping we will see some Mars quakes on the... Uh, on the new instruments, the new seismometer that's on the surface of Mars. But yeah, just the idea that there it's not just a dead rock, that there's there's still mm-hmm. stuff going on and methane's coming out and like Mars is a more dynamic place than perhaps uh, we feared. Yeah, I mean that was the thought for a long time that it was basically dormant and it's slowly showing itself to be an, an active place different than Earth, very different from Earth, yeah. but that's still all positive signs you know that that life could be possible does it mean it's there just like that underwater lake doesn't mean there's water there but those are all pointers in the right direction mm-hmm. okay we have some more stuff to talk about but first let me tell you about our first sponsor this week this episode of liftoff is brought to you by KiwiCo. while you're looking for fun activities for your kids it's a bonus if it's something they can learn from But finding projects that are actually fun and educational, that could be pretty hard to do. And that's where KiwiCo comes in. They have an awesome selection of hands-on projects for kids of all ages. So here's how it works. You sign up for a KiwiCo subscription, and every month you receive a crate full of exciting projects. And all these projects have been designed to encourage confidence and creativity. There are hundreds of hands-on projects available covering science, technology, engineering, art, and math. The crates all have great names, including Eureka, that's for ages 14 to 104. Something for everybody. So we received a KiwiCo crate here at home. We got the koala crate for our four-year-old. This month, it was all about rainbows. So we had a bunch of fun, age-appropriate crafts for him to do, uh, including some stuff with uh, stained glass art that came out really nice. It's hanging in the window of the kitchen and a cloud pillow. So we took a uh, pillow cloud and stuffed it and then put basically like rainbow patches onto it. So we got to talk about where rainbows come from, how they work, and the paperwork that comes with it I have in front of me now, really easy to sort of walk your way through. So I'm not a particularly artsy, craftsy kind of person, but even I, with very little experience in this arena, uh, could walk him through and we we did it together. And it was a ton of fun. Uh, He is not letting that pillow go anytime soon. Change the way your kids play with KiwiCo. Visit KiwiCo.com slash liftoff and you'll get your first crate for free. 
That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash liftoff for your first crate free. It's a great way to encourage learning in a way that your kids will enjoy. The URL one more time is KiwiCo.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to KiwiCo for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. We get the opportunity to name another solar system body, Jason. You know, they didn't take our name for Peanut. That's that's the true. Ultima Thule, they, you know, yeah. I, I thought Peanut would have been a great name. As it turns out, Peanut would have been a spectacular name for that thing. It was even better than we knew at the time. Mm. <laughs> so, so good. Uh, but, so we uh, need no. to talk about 2007 OR10. Yeah, it's another one of these Kuiper Belt objects uh, discovered by... Mike Brown, uh, him again, uh, Meg Schwamm, and David Rabinowitz. And in 2007, because that's why it's called 2007 OR10. Right in the name. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is. Um, and, and after, there's like a 10 years after you have a well-determined orbit, you, you discoverers can suggest a name to the International Astronomical Union. And that time is now. So... Um, what they did is something interesting. So uh, about 2007 OR10, it is smaller than Pluto. It's got a small moon. Um, it has been analyzed enough that we we know uh, its color. I think it's kind of reddish. It's got mm-hmm. water ice and methane on its surface. It doesn't uh, get... There's, there's actually... Um, we'll put a link in the show notes. There's a nice uh, map like uh, showing its orbit and comparing it to the orbits of other Kuiper Belt objects. And it's, you know... Uh, it's it's what you'd expect. It's kind of far out, um, like Sedna um, and Makemake and uh, and really like Eris. It's actually got an orbit that looks very similar to Eris, where it gets mm-hmm. close uh, to the solar system and then it and it gets further away. But it's never really closer than the orbit of Neptune. So it's far out there. Way and then out it gets there. and then it gets even further out there. Um, so that's thirty three astronomical units at closest and. Keeping mind, Earth is one astronomical unit. It's way out there. And then it's 101 AU at the furthest point. So it gets far, far, far out there. It is because they haven't named it yet and because it's one of these large Kuiper Belt objects, the largest unnamed body in the solar system. And that is why it needs a name. But Stephen, who decides the name of internationally recognized (laughs) astronomical (laughs) objects? Yeah. So like you said, there's that 10-year period and then discovers you know, can suggest names, but then the IAU formally bestows it. But what's cool here is that there are three that this public website, the link is in the show notes. Uh, people can go uh, read about the names. They can listen to them. Yeah. So the what, the idea of these outer solar system objects is that they're all supposed to be named because the, the IAU likes themes. They're all supposed to be named mm-hmm. for, I think it's creation myth yeah, characters from mythology. So that's why you have Haumea and Make Make and Eris and Sedna. They are all, um, I believe, from creation myths. And so these three proposed names um, that the that the discoverers have put out there are all um, sort of from mythology in various mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, you've got a Chinese name, European name, and a Nordic name of these sort of ancient deities involved in creation and there's a whole thing on here you can go check them out and uh so they are going to be these, these names have all been selected to meet the, those requirements and uh we can go in here and you can more about them and they have a, a voting form which is just straight up just a google form just yep. like <laughs> that's what this is 
And uh, you can vote before the end of May 10th, so about a month from now, about 30 days from now. Yeah, so the uh, the names that are suggested, Gong Gong, Hola, and Vili. Yep, there, there are the names. There they are. What'd you vote for? Uh, Holly. Okay. Uh, I went the, well, I went with the middle one. It uh, it just seems to fit in my mind with Eris and some of the others a little bit better. So, I I went with uh, with Vili. Okay. The the Nordic deity uh, who defeated the frost giant mm-hmm. and created the universe. So that's yes. that's nice too. But they're all good names. I love the story behind Gong Gong. It's a Chinese water god with red hair and a serpent like tail. Known for creating chaos, causing flooding, and tilting the earth. So mm. Gong Gong made the seasons, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, it's great. And it's very fun. I, I wonder what the origin of this is and if they thought this would be a fun way to get people involved in science and astronomy, whether it's a way for people to pay attention to this discovery that is, uh, you know, is not widely understood or known, whether they um, all had their favorites and could not agree. <laughs> like, I wonder <laughs> what the process is here. But it is their prerogative which is pretty cool to suggest a name to the iau and uh, i think it's very cool that the three uh discoverers decided to basically put it to a vote of names that they that they picked so you can't call it like uh planet mcplanet face yeah who would ever the internet would never do that no oh, wait no. I, I mean in my mind it is to help have the public involved in this sort of this sort of discovery like you know icy body on the edge of the kuiper belt it's not in everyone's wheelhouse but something like this can make the news and people talk about it and and then people learn about this discovery through it yep sounds good sounds good do you um there's some vandalism going on in the asteroid belt do you want to tell people about that sure so uh (laughs) (laughs) some some light uh explosion work is going on, sure. you know, some, some, I don't want to say space, it's not space mining, but it's space detonating. That's going on for sure. So Jason, what's, what's going on here besides, like we said, space demolition? Yeah. You, you, you just don't want to say the name, do you? It's, it's uh, just, so it's a, it's, it's a rough one. It's so it's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft and it's at Ryugu, I believe. That, Ryugu. That's the one. That's Ryugu. the one I struggle with. And, uh, the idea here is how do you get samples from uh, an asteroid if you're a spacecraft? And the answer is that you um, you hit it with things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Hayabusa 2 uh, slammed a, uh, a two-kilogram copper plate, that's four and, about four and a half pounds, uh, copper plate into the surface using explosives. So it's like the cheap, it's like a really, really bad spacecraft. There's a copper plate with explosives behind it, and then they blow up the explosives, and the detonation forces the plate forward, and uh, it zooms in and just smacks into Ryugu, the asteroid. At a very high rate of speed, I think they said it's like 4,500 miles an hour. That's uh, more than 7,000 kilometers per hour. But pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sure, you blow up a plate and see how fast it moves. Uh, apparently, fat. don't blow up plates, people, it's even especially copper ones, because they're basically projectiles. Uh, anyway, it leaves behind a crater. Um, it lets them look at the crater uh, and see sort of like they're scraping off the surface of the asteroid to see what's underneath. And then they may also uh, collect a sample from there. But this is part of the process of of learning about and sampling these uh, these things. It's similar to how uh, there was just a, a shot the other day from Mars about how they're, um, you know, drilling boreholes and getting samples on Mars. And it's a very similar kind of thing where, you know, you can first step one is pick stuff off, off the surface, but step two is you want to do, 
you want to get uh, lower down. And if mm-hmm. you're a little spacecraft like Hayabusa 2, you do this by shooting, you know, metal objects at yeah, it. Yeah, a big impactor. And knocking stuff off. Yeah, it's it, and it's different than what NASA is doing with OSIRIS-REx right, at Bennu. You know, that's more gathering stuff from the surface with its little, you know, air nozzle. This is clearly a little more involved, but important because if if this works and this just happened as we're recording like a day and a half ago so uh the spacecraft won't fly back in close for a little while till the debris settles down you don't want to get hit by uh by debris at those speeds of course but it can be uh really interesting to see the the makeup of this asteroid its composition beneath the surface and that's what the hope is here that if this crater uh, was successful and is deep enough we can learn about what is closer to the center of this thing? Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's nice. I, mm-hmm. We're we're really doing some damage to the uh, to the asteroid belt now. <laughs> well, you know, this is after it, this had the little uh, bouncy landers. Remember those? Yeah. There's one more of those apparently that could be deployed later this year, and then uh, you know a sample return in 2020. So lots more Fun stuff going on with asteroids. Woo! Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'm sure our listeners are uh, desperate to hear more about uh, all the answers, all the answers, Stephen, to what NASA is doing to get people to the moon in 2024. <laughs> oh, um, and I'm sure they will all be revealed right after we take this break. And let me tell you about our other sponsor this week. How is that for a cliffhanger? This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace as well. Uh, I love Squarespace uh, for this show, especially because it's got space in the name, but it is not space related. It's instead a place that lets you easily create a website for your next idea make your next move with squarespace you can get a unique domain you can use their award-winning templates and much more so whether you want to create an online store a portfolio a blog to get your thoughts out on the internet squarespace will let you do all of that it's an all-in-one platform there's nothing to install there are no patches to worry about there's no software updates that you need to apply to a server somewhere you don't do any of that stuff you just use squarespace and squarespace takes care of all the technical stuff behind the scenes there's award-winning 24 7 customer support if you need help they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed so you can show off your next great idea and the best part squarespace plans started just 12 dollars a month such a deal you can start a trial today no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff and when you decide to sign up use the offer code liftoff you'll get 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this podcast. So that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting Liftoff. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So this week is the it's the Space Symposium week out in Colorado. Space agencies, reporters, commercial partners, everyone there talking about the future and just this morning, Jim Bridenstine spoke, and of course, his comments, once he got to them, were about this 2024 lunar goal that we spoke about two weeks ago, that basically the day that Mike Pence announced it, saying, hey, we're going to go to the moon, uh, and we're going to land in five years. And there was a lot of language about, by any means necessary, and lots of debate about the SLS and its role in it. In the two weeks since then, I would like to have been able to come back and say, the dust has really settled, and we know what's happening. 
but that just hasn't quite happened yet. So it seems like a few things are in motion before we get to his comments. One, NASA is working on a budget amendment with more funding for the moon project. And we expect them to go to Congress with that and say, hey, this is how much this is going to take this year and over the next several years. So more money, please. Yeah, right, right. I mean, at least it solves the question of like, why did you announce a a reduced NASA budget and then announce you're going to the moon? And the answer is, well, uh, we changed our mind or something. And now uh, we obviously will need more money, which is, yeah, obviously they will. So they're going to make an amendment to their budget request. And then, of course, in the end, the administration's budget kind of doesn't matter uh, because in the end, Congress decides this. And Mm -hmm. so the question is, what comes out of the whole kind of budget procedure in terms of funding NASA? And uh, as we're going to get into, uh, Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, did give a speech. Uh, and and one of the things that he mentioned that I thought was actually good was a call for bipartisan support. And he listed a bunch of former NASA administrators and said, you know, our problem has been, he's totally right, our problem has been going back and forth between administrations and having different goals and changing mm-hmm. things up and we never get anywhere. And so, you know, his pitch is, let's all get behind this and we can make it happen, but we want to have bipartisan support. The reality is they're going to need bipartisan partisan support because if uh, the House doesn't want to fund this, it's not going to get funded and the House is controlled by the other party. So that's going to have to be part of the part of the equation here. It's it's a huge part of it. And I think that this program really I mean, we're going to know whenever Congress gets to this, if this is even feasible, right? If they say no to this budget increase, then it doesn't matter if you can speed the technology up or not. You don't have the funding to even try. So there's still a lot of things to do before they get to the actual work. Get to the actual work. Um, so you've got the budget stuff, and then you have the National Space Council, which is Mike Pence and friends. That's the meeting we watched a couple weeks ago in Huntsville. That just they basically just had a board meeting in front of cameras, and the uh, users advisory group uh, met again at this symposium and. It seems like they are putting together a task force to basically oversee and review these new plans. So this was put forward by uh, Lester Lyles, an Air Force general who serves as a chairman uh, of the group's Exploration and Discovery Subcommittee. And so, he, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming across his way of uh, these programs and the parts of these programs. And so they're looking to put together a a group of subject matter experts who would – uh, kind of oversee this work that that NASA and its partners are going to be doing because every time they speak about this, it is NASA and partners, both commercial and international. And they they he talked about that again today that that is an important part of it. That yes, they're committed to the SLS, but Gateway and all these other things are going to require more than just uh, NASA doing it. It's going to require multiple people, so multiple agencies, multiple companies. And so I don't know how much has changed in the last two weeks. I think whenever this uh, budget proposal comes out, we'll know a lot more. Uh, but there, there has been some movement, right? So you spoke about the the lack of a lunar lander. You, you have uh, an mm-hmm. ascent, a decent stage, and 
how that was basically nowhere, but it seems like maybe the beginning part of that process has started, right? Yeah. So one thing that Bridenstine mentioned when he was speaking today, right before we recorded, is the idea that they are putting out proposals and have put out proposals for the uh, what they're calling the human landing system. And so they need an ascent stage and a descent stage, as well as a basically... Uh, I forget what they call it, but it's basically a module that is the is taking them down to the point at which you you descend. So something that would be the capsule, uh, if you think about it, that's like the command and service module from Apollo. Um, they need all these pieces because they need to get people to the moon, and then they need to get them down, and then they need to get them back up. And um, Bredenstein also reiterated that the goal there is to have it be, you know, uh, uh, a you know, man on the moon again, but also the first woman on the moon mm-hmm. is part of their their stated goal. Although at one point, Bridenstine referred to it as uh, the first lady on the moon. And I thought, uh, Melania, no. <laughs> um, She's been training. She's ready first, to go. First lady on the moon. It's going to happen, I guess. Uh, so the they have made these proposals and we'll put a link to one of them in the show notes in case you would like to be a contractor who supplies a, uh, an ascent module for lunar landers in uh, in 2020 in the 2020s, but they are they are moving on that front on the paperwork front, and they are definitely focused on commercial partners, which I think is really interesting because I wonder if that means that they're expecting Boeing or SpaceX to kind of look at their existing commercial crew stuff that they're doing and say, are there ways we could adapt some of this stuff, some of the some of the uh, the engines that we've built. Um, if there are other space industry contractors who look at it and are like, could we, you know, do we have stuff that we could put together into a proposal to turn into one of these vehicles? Because there's really only a small group in the world that have the pieces to put together to make something like this. Um, and I- I'm unclear whether this is a little bit rigged where they're putting it out there and then they're like, well, you know, make your proposal, but they kind of know who's going to be making the proposals or whether it's a little more open than that, where they're like, you know, help us out here, guys. But obviously what NASA has to offer if they get funded is money. You know, it's another stream of money for a commercial space company to work on this, but they do have those out there. So that is, that is a start uh, of the process of of uh, needing to get a moon lander, I will point out that it is kind of bananas to say we there we we just put out a proposal to get bids to start working on a lunar lander that will land on the moon in five years, because that is a uh, that that is kind of a quick turnaround. But that is the game that they're playing right now. I mean, we just spoke about the issues with the limb and the Apollo days and how it drug on and on and on. And that's not to say that that would happen again here, but it's a complicated bit of engineering to, to do this. And, you know, it, it may be that one of these companies has been working on something. I know there have been reports of that in the past that maybe, hey, we got this and it's kind of already far along, but time will tell. But out of everything, out of all the components needed, it seems to be the furthest away. And, um, you know, yeah. I'm going to be filling out my paperwork to see if I could build one. Yeah, so. yeah, you should do that. You should Relay FM should uh, should go in on one, on, yeah. uh, see if we can build a lunar lander. But it, it a, is, I mean, at least pivot. they are they are starting to tell the story. So you know what Bridenstine's basically saying is we're going to just do what we already said we would do, but faster. He talked about the SLS, and this is not SLS yeah. segment, but he basically said you know we're going to do EM1 with the SLS, which is going to be you know a European module. 
um, uh, around the moon with nobody in it. And then the uh, as they want to do two uh, EM2 as soon as possible, which is this big question, right? Because we talked about how is it going to be like a couple of years before they could even do EM2. Mm-hmm. And it's really unclear. So that, that's what, that's the part where it's cloudy and there's a question mark in the sketch on the, on the napkin. And it's like, I don't know how this happens. But then then uh, we just move it along faster is what Bridenstine is saying to get to the point where they want the gateway. Gateway is still there. The lunar uh, space station as a part of this and the idea is to get people to the moon in 2024 but have it be basically a permanent uh, presence in, mm-hmm. in you know by 2028 he talks a lot about sustainability he talks a lot about um, how SLS is not a reusable rocket but it has the advantage of being a heavy lift capable thing that can get the the mass into space that is required so that we have that stuff there to build a reusable program because he said we will need reusable landers and reusable service modules and all of that is is part of the story because you can't you know, keep sending new lunar landers up every time you want to mm-hmm. go down. They want to be able to take the lander down and then bring it back up. So, right. you know, he said the right things. I felt like it was a weird speech because he had like bowling anecdotes at one point and he had kind of like a tribute to Apollo 10, which I feel like, you know, we could just take clips from his speech and that could be our <laughs> Apollo 10 episode, at least part of it. But, um, but in the middle, he had a very good chunk where he really is as a, somebody who is a politician and is trained pretty well to do public speaking um he is trying to you know synthesize based on all these disparate elements a story to tell about how this is going to get done and i think it's very easy to look at it and be like "Mm, i don't know if they can really do that i do like the fact that they're setting goals here but he is trying to put together that story of here's how we're going to get here and then we go to you know sustainable later and then it's pointing them the way toward going to mars and that story is being built up again it's going to come down to uh, execution and funding, but whether it actually happens, but you can, it's, it, it's fascinating to see in public, which is, uh, I think a little unusual, a little surprising to see them get their story straight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's all in the details, right? I, I wanted to right? go back to the gateway for a second because we had spoken a couple weeks ago about the idea, like, is it a necessary step? And, and their plan the answer is yes, that they want yeah. to have a reusable lander that can go up and dock and, and come back down. And and give them access to different parts of the moon, which I think is a good point, right? The idea that once you've got a station in orbit around the moon, yes. you are then able to have access to, you can kind of go wherever you want to on the surface of the moon because you're, you're in lunar orbit. You're not coming at you know, at speed from Earth, you can, you know, I, I, I like that idea. It's an interesting point. Yeah. And and that, I think, is something that you could do with Gateway that would be way more difficult if it's a direct injection, you know, lunar injection kind of thing to get into the right orbit, to get into the right place. But that's uh, something that, you know, there was that story a couple weeks ago about, you know, landing at uh, one of the poles, you know, could be the first landing site. And if you want to get to water ice on the moon, you got to go to one of the poles. And Gateway could allow them to do that. And so uh, I think it's something we had maybe overlooked in our conversation. But it seems to be a, a, a critical element to their plan, even though it does complicate things. <laughs> it's, a, it's another thing to build, another thing to have ready. Yeah, it's I, I sense your hesitation and skepticism of this, and I think that that is right. I, I like I want to hear them, you know. I want to hear their coherent story, and I want to see their funding, and you know, I it's all of those things. Sort of like, show me what your plan is here. But there's part of me that again just keeps on saying, 
setting goals or selling goals is good. And for sure. years now, the goals have been amorphous and very far away. Mm-hmm. And I don't think 2024 is even remotely possible. But I think that it by making a bold move like this, if they can get funding, it, it's it's going to get... I think that's how you get somebody to the surface of the moon. Maybe not in 2024, but I think that's how you get them there. And so I like that part of it. I like that Bradenstein's sort of challenging everybody to um, you know think about like how do you do it how how do we get there in uh, in, in this at this pace how do we quicken our pace and can we use commercial partners and how quickly can they do this and can we get funding for this um, I think that's all good because I think ten year plans uh, as we've seen the last twenty years ten year plans um, never come to fruition it's just the bottom line and. Uh, creating a shorter time horizon and trying to get everybody pushing in the right direction. This is a, a different approach and maybe it will work and maybe it won't, but I think it's got, like I said, I think it will have, it increases our chance of it, of it ultimately working, if not by the deadline that um, is currently set. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. <laughs> I, so, I, yeah, long, longer than you might think probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is a, a busy week of space stuff, though. There are a couple of things coming up in the next few days that uh, I want to talk about. Uh, the first one is it's being pitched as photos of black holes. That's the details are important here. So uh, this is from the Event Horizon Telescope team, uh-huh. and they are expected to show images of a pair of black holes, one being at the center of the Milky Way and one in a galaxy found in the constellation Virgo. This is not going to be what you think of when you see black holes. This is, this is according to these articles, we basically uh, shadows big, uh, backlit by kind of background radiation, background radio energy. Yeah. It's not going to be, there's not going to be an image out of uh, interstellar, but if this is what this team has and they're pulling out all the stops, like they're having this multi-city event and it's going to be streamed. And, and That's right. All the, pa- all the scientific papers are being released simultaneously with the press conference. And I imagine there's a bunch of embargoes going on as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're, they're going to make a big deal out of it. However, if this is literally our first image of a black hole where we actually see the shadow of the black hole, because you can't really see the black hole. It is a singularity. It is a point in space time. But you can see that part where the light can't escape from it. And there are lots of beautiful artist conceptions that we'll probably see more of tomorrow. But um, it's still it is an enormous moment, because if you think back 100 years, like black holes emerge from math of relativity and you know from einstein and others there was math that said oh here's a funny quirk of the math (laughs) this it's an object that uh that swallows all matter and light and uh would be uh, uh would be eventually dubbed a black hole because there would be no light emanating from it it actually turns out that black holes are very bright objects because they have so much gravity that they heat up all the matter that's being pulled around them and that stuff glows really brightly. But, you know, this was a fanciful object. And then uh, was it, oh, who who was it? Was it Chandrasekhar? I forget who it was. There was, there was a physicist in the mid 20th century who said, oh no, I think this, I think this is real. I think this could really happen. And then from there, um, you know, it was very hard to think that we would ever prove 
that it was something that could exist. And yet we got, you know, X-ray proof. And, you know, we had all of these things. LIGO had its black hole collision that it detected with gravitational waves, which is mm-hmm. yet another thing that's a consequence of Einstein and and uh, his thoughts about it. So it is this fascinating kind of like agglomeration of science uh, going over the course of a hundred years from this being a quirk of the math to being maybe real, to being maybe proven, to being widely thought of as being a real object, to getting some you know evidence of it of its gravitational force. We've seen those shots from the center of the galaxy of all the stars swirling very quickly around nothing and it's like hmm, there's got to be something there but we don't see it what could that be it will be a big moment for science if we've directly imaged the shadow of a black hole that's a that's a, a big deal so they're making such a big plan for this that's got to be what it is right and the fact there are stories out here saying it's widely thought that this is what it's going to be so i'm looking forward to seeing it because black holes are fascinating they are one of the few things in relativity relativity and astrophysics that have captured the you know the popular consciousness the public's attention black holes for some reason are just they 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 grab you and they don't let go and i mean that literally but also figuratively yeah you're right i mean the average person on the street they they can explain or they maybe not explain but they at least have some passing knowledge of and i imagine that if these pictures are real that's going to basically be all over the internet in the next the next several days yeah, even though it'll probably look like, uh, you know, five pixels of light and one pixel of dark. But yeah. they'll be like, but that's that what that that's what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and we'll be like, mm, it's not as pretty as that Disney movie I saw when I was a kid. But all right. OK, it's a black hole. I got gotcha. you. Other uh, uh, one more thing for us to, to, to forward promote for those who are listening on Tuesday. If you're listening on Wednesday, April 10th or thereafter, this maybe already happened. But um uh, we're going to get our second Falcon Heavy launch from SpaceX, Yay. which is exciting because we had that first one. It was a, it was great when we streamed it live, and we were very excited about it. And uh, then it's it's been a while, but they're they are launching a, uh, a communication satellite on uh, on Falcon Heavy. It's currently scheduled to go up tomorrow as we record this. This is a Block Five version, so it's using the new Falcon Nine engines. This is basically the final form of Falcon Heavy, just like the 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 Block Five. Uh, Falcon 9s are the final form of the Falcon 9, where they're kind of like all upgraded with all the last, you know, most recent, current, kind of final parts. So that's cool. It's the, it's like modern Falcon Heavy, but it is funny that this is only the second one that will launch, which means if we're lucky, I believe we're going to get multiple um, first stage landings again, which is uh, really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing this thing. It's one of two planned Falcon Heavy launches this year. So not a lot of these. It's kind of a rare a rare sight. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I mean, it's more expensive. They're li- lifting uh, really heavy stuff, but it is, uh, it's cool to see. So, so yeah, the first Falcon Heavy launch was more than a year ago, um, and that was Block 3 and 4. So, so getting the Block 5 stuff in there and having it be like, this is the one that will launch from now on and they and the plan is the same right so two side the two side uh, uh, first stages basically they're basically like little returning falcon nines will launch will we'll land at uh cape canaveral air station uh which is right next to kennedy space center and then they will try to land the uh the main first stage on a drone ship out in the atlantic if you recall um, that was a water landing last time, so they'll try mm-hmm. to actually land it on the drone this time. 
All right. If you want to read more about the stories we discussed, head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 96. Uh, while you're there, you can send us an email. There's a contact link there in the sidebar. Uh, there's a link also to our Tumblr account where we post links to stories in between episodes. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. Jason is Jay Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.